The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Let's just pause there, although the psalm wonderfully goes on, but I'm now in uh, Romans chapter 11, um, and at the end of that, basically, um, Paul has been mounting this argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we once knew through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel, now through Christ, has been fulfilled to, not just to the Jewish people, to God's own people, but to Gentiles, they're included in. And, and Paul is kind of caught up in the praise and wonder of this. So from verse 33 of chapter 11 through to 12, verse two. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Therefore, I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're employing this metaphor of, of a mountain, uh, and a mountain being something big and challenging that nevertheless we are called to ascend. That's the little theme for this series as we look to embrace our own challenges and join with the challenges of all our brothers and sisters and men and women across this globe as we enter into 2021. It's, it's like a huge mountain. And we may be struggling with altitude sickness. We, we may be uh, struggling with our own physical fitness. We're wondering whether we can act. We've got it within us to scale this peak. We're, we're wondering whether we are skillful enough with rope and ice axe and crampons and, and uh, all the climbing paraphernalia that may be available to us. Can I do this? Can I go on? And we're in good company, as we saw last week. This is a psalm of David, Psalm 24. And he wrote this psalm of, of praise. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up, you ancient doors. He wrote this psalm of praise off the back of at least three battles that we know of, know of the Jebusites and two against the Philistines. So he had his own struggles. He had his own challenges. And yet he was able to come through with what Paul might call uh, a sacrifice, a living sacrifice of praise. This is your true worship. 
and we have our own challenges today, irrespective and notwithstanding the pandemic, which uh, there has been much commentary about, and uh, political challenges in, in this country and across the seas and in other parts of the world, and we recognize them. But, but I, I wonder specifically for those of us seeking to live our lives for Jesus Christ, whether we have a unique challenge that confronts us, that our own sort of mountain, which is less obvious maybe than a whole army of Philistines arrayed against us. It's the idol that uh, David talks about in or refers to in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in God's holy place? Those who have clean hearts, clean hands rather, and a pure heart who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god. What's, what's one of the most prevalent idols in our world today? What is one of the most prevalent false gods that uh, offers out its siren call to us day after day after day, beseeching us to come and worship at its feet and rendering weak and anemic our faith in God? I, I want to suggest it's, it's the idol of, of pleasure, of comfort, and of happiness. Th those three all kind of cluster together, aided, fueled by a consumerist society with the technology that, that renders it even more individualistic. I was thinking the other day, when was the last time I bought a book by walking into a bookshop? I can't remember the time I had to leave my house and travel and make an effort to go into a, a shop filled with books and to find the particular section and on the section the particular shelf and on the shelf the particular book. I can't remember the last time I had to make an effort like that. Books just come to me after about two or three clicks. And not only that. Once I've selected the book that I had in mind to purchase, my screen offers me all sorts of other choices. Maybe you'd be interested in this book or in these themes. Other people who bought books like you also bought this. And I go, ooh, hmm. And 20 minutes later, in some kind of consumerist reverie, I've maybe bought one or two other things that I didn't need, I didn't even know I wanted. Just for my comfort, convenience, just so that I can consume even more. And they'd call it retail therapy. I, I momentarily feel good. It never lasts. The God of pleasure, of comfort, and it's surrounded, it's cocooned, if you like, I think by a myth in our age and in our culture that is that freedom, and our, our own Bishop, Bishop Tomlin has, has written uh, uh, on this topic, freedom is any external restraint that would limit or inhibit me. Anything that inhibits me curtails my freedom and I have a right to be free. I have a right to do whatever I want, wherever I want, with whomever I want, as long as I'm not harming anyone. And so I'm free to pursue pleasure and happiness. I, I suggest that's quite a God, an idol in our age. 
Which is why I wonder, just as an aside, whether some of the difficulties that we've experienced in 2020 and on into 2021, where nationally and locally restrictions have been placed upon us, our freedom has been curbed and therefore our happiness cut short, has deeply dissatisfied us and caused us fresh anxiety. How can I break free of this idol? How can I live in true freedom? How can I climb the mountain of the Lord in order that I may see his face, to know him and be known by him and to bring him into the lives and the consciousness of others around? How can I be a connector in that sense? C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian apologist of the last century, uh, English professor, he wrote this, just on this whole topic. He said, the Christian life consists not in living as we please, but in living as we ought, and discovering thereby that living as we ought pleases us. Christian life is not living as we please, but living as we ought and discovering that when we live as we ought, when we put self-restraint on ourselves, when we train ourselves to live godly lives, actually that pleases us. Paul to the Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This evening, I, I want to talk just for a little bit on training for the climb. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord as we, as we gird ourselves to launch into 2021 and beyond? How, how will I equip myself? How can I train for whatever lies ahead? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, Paul says. Renounce the idol. Recognize and renounce the idols of this age and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Training, fitness, disciplines. Not on occasion trying to do the right thing, but consistently training to become the right person. Discipline is not trying on occasion to do the right thing, but training consistently to become the right person. I want to look at a couple of myths or misunderstandings around spiritual disciplines, training for godliness, as Paul puts it to one of his protégés, Timothy, uh, a, a rule of life, if you like. Um, I want to look at two myths and then one sort of principle, if you like, that uh, I found incredibly helpful in releasing spiritual life in my practices, in helping me to develop a discipline, a rule of life that enables God's life to flourish in me. So here's the first myth or misunderstanding, and it's this. And maybe it's around the language. When we talk about discipline or a, a rule of life, and we think, hang on, discipline, rules, and we kind of quickly carry back to perhaps when we were at school, and we, we've maybe come to associate, maybe understandably, that discipline equates to punishment. That when I did something wrong, in order for those in authority over me to discipline me, to train me in the way I should go, it involves some form of punishment. And therefore, the idea of a spiritual discipline carries punitive overtones. 
or, or a rule. We, we don't like rules. That, that goes against our cultural God of freedom. Oh, I don't want rules to inhibit me. I, I want to do what I want. So this idea of, of discipline or punishment of, of rules, it, it kind of creates in us a mindset, this is not somewhere I want to go. But it's a misunderstanding. Spiritual disciplines, training for godliness, being transformed so that we might know, test and approve God's will in our lives. Then they're not so much a penance as a practice. They're not deadening as they are life-giving. They are ways in which I cooperate with God to release more of his life in and through me so that more and more of me can naturally tune in to more and more of him. I can test and approve what God's will is. Dallas Willard, who I mentioned earlier, sorry with the, the mics at the top of the, my talk here, but I was just flagging up some books. If you Google Dallas Willard and pretty much anything you can get hold of him, read it, but particularly stuff around discipleship, renovation of the heart, spiritual disciplines and so on. He puts it like this, this is a beautiful phrase. He just says that spiritual training, spiritual disciplines, a rule of life is learning effective cooperation with the divine order. A beautiful phrase. Learning effective cooperation with the divine order. I, I like to think of it as tuning into the rhythms of heaven and learning to dance to the beat here on earth. You remember Jesus in John 15? He said to his followers, Abide in me and I will abide in you. There's a command and a promise. The command is abide, live in Jesus. And as you, as you rest in him, as you le- sort of lean into him, as you rely on him, he will abide in us and you will bear much fruit. Your, your life will begin to demonstrate and, and, and flow out with my life. The fruit of the Spirit, more love, more joy, more peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Ah. And then we can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. David danced with all his might, we saw last week in 2 Samuel 6. He was dancing to the rhythm of heaven, even though he was faced by Philistines who were no doubt licking their wounds and out to get him again. He had all sorts of challenges that he was going to face, but he dances. He he disciplines himself, battle-weary as he is, probably scarred as he is, mourning the loss of colleagues and friends on the battlefield. Nevertheless, he dances with all his might. That's, that's discipline. That's focused determination. And as David danced in the presence of God, so we look to live our lives to the audience of one. God the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our focus. We've just finished celebrating the fact that he came to live amongst us, to be with us. We've seen, John says, we've seen his glory. We, we, we know what God looks like in our own skin and blood. Flesh and blood, skin and bones, that's what I meant to say. 
He's given us a role model. He's given us inspiration. So we don't pursue disciplines for discipline's sake. We're not trying to live a rule for a rule's sake. No one practices the piano in order to become really good at practicing the piano. No, you practice the piano in order to become good at playing it. Disciplines are simply practicing, doing what needs doing, when it needs doing, so that it becomes instinctive. It, it just becomes naturally who we are. For those of you who are drivers, if you, you drive a car, can you remember when you first were learning to drive a car? W was there ever a time when you had each foot and each hand all responsible for doing something different, be it the accelerator or the clutch, and, and learning to get the bike with your feet while also trying to uh, use the gear stick with your left hand and steer the car with your right hand? All, all those different parts. Can you remember how you, you thought you were almost going to blow up? Just worrying and stressing about all these different things. I remember one of our children, all three of them can drive now, but when I was sitting in the passenger seat with one of them, and I remember that they're saying, I'm never going to be able to do this, as we kind of kangarooed ourselves to the next stall. <laughs> and yet, they now all drive perfectly. And none of them say, well, Dad, can I, can I borrow the keys? I want to get really good at practicing clutch control. No, they've mastered clutch control precisely so that they can drive. So the first myth, that these disciplines are kind of, um, they're negative, they're kind of stuff we've got to do. No, these are things we would long to do in order to release even more life in us so that we can become the kind of people that we currently aren't but we aspire to be. Second uh, kind of it's more a false framework, I think, than a myth. But it leads to a misunderstanding. And it's this. When we talk about, about discipline or about work or about you know, striving or, or fitness or expending energy, um, focusing, David dancing with all his might, and it sounds as if we're talking about a lot of human effort. And doesn't that, someone say, doesn't that rather negate the whole premise of the gospel, the good news of God coming in search of us, that it's all soaked and predicated in grace, in, in God's gift to us. Isn't, isn't this Christian living something that we receive rather than something we work towards? I think it's just approaching this whole area in, in, in a skewed framework. If I can put it like this, the opposite of grace is earning not effort. Grace is, is God's riches at Christ's expense, that little mnemonic. It's, it's recognizing that I, I cannot, in my own strength, stand before a holy God, but God has sent Jesus, a perfect human being, to die in my place, to soak up the stain of my sin. And when he cries, it is finished. He declares liberation for you and I to begin a new relationship with God. That is his gift to us but I work with all my might that I might not lose one ounce of that grace that I do everything that I can in that as Dallas Willow puts it that uh, divine cooperation that effective cooperation with the with the divine order 
that I, I do everything to, as Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. So God has done his bit, grace, which I receive and then I work to work it in and out and through of my life. So the opposite of grace is not effort, it's earning. Indeed, Paul writes to, to Timothy, a kind of, uh, he's a kind of you know, mentoree, a young leader that he's training up. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, train yourself to be godly. And the, the Greek word that we translate train there is the Greek word gymnase, from, from which we get the word gymnasium, among others. In other words, I mean, what do you do, what do, you do in a gym? You, you just see there's a whole lot of grunting and sweating and panting and puffing. There's a lot of energy expended in order to work on the body. And as we know, uh, a healthy body often leads to a healthy mind, healthy soul. It's a, it's a kind of whole, whole life. But there's a focus on the body. Well, here Paul is saying... To Timothy, it's good to be fit and healthy in a physical sense, but train yourself to be godly. Train your soul, train your spirit, discipline. If you want to climb the mountain, you're going to need to be spiritually fit. In other words, Paul to Timothy, the spirit to each and every one of us, deliberately arrange your life moment by moment and day by day around simple activities that enable more of the life of God to be released in and through you, that enable you to live more and more in the fruit of the Spirit. Train yourself to be godly. Okay, so those are the two myths. What was the, what's the kind of principle? You may be sitting there thinking, Tim, it's all very well. You, you sit there, you, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I'm going through right now. And, and who knows what the future holds? I've got no idea what next week or next month or next year looks like. And if I'm honest, it, it's, it's slightly terrifying. I, I don't know what's coming up. And I don't know if I've got the capacity to cope with what's coming up. How? How can I train myself to be even more godly? What do I do? And here's the principle. Um, it's what um, uh, John Ortberg in his book, John Ortberg kind of was a disciple of Dallas Willard and he wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted which he, in his preface, he called Dallas for, for Dummies. Uh, it's kind of, kind of accessible version. Brilliant book, really helpful book. And he, he talks in there the principle of, of training rather than trying. It's says, you know, he says, you know, if, you, if you sort of invited him to, to run a marathon tomorrow, he, he, wouldn't be able, he, he wouldn't be able to do it. He wouldn't be able to run 26 miles tomorrow, no matter how hard he tried. He'd try as hard as he liked. He wouldn't be able to do it. But if you said, hey, John, in six months' time there's a marathon, why don't you train for it? Then, then what he could do is each day just, just run a little bit and then a little bit further and a little bit Create a training schedule. And bit by bit, he could build his fitness, build his strength, build his stamina, so that with a fair degree of confidence in six months' time, yeah, if I train, I can achieve, I can run a marathon. But if you ask me to run a marathon right now, no matter how hard I try, I couldn't do it. The principle is this. You, you, you just build into your life a succession of, of patterns, of activities, of, of, of thoughts that you can do in order to get you to the place where currently you are not, 
to, to do those things that you currently can't do, but you build them in so that one day you can. I'll give you an example. Anyone found themselves getting a little bit testy or impatient in these last few weeks and months? Do, do you sometimes find yourself wishing, I, I, I wish I was more patient? You, you maybe see someone else who, who looks like they're kind of the, you know, the proverbial swan just gliding across the stormy waters. And I wish I could be more like them. Why aren't I like them? Maybe, maybe the prayer is not to pray, not to pray, Lord, give me patience. Maybe it's, Lord, put me into situations where I need to exercise patience. So it may be that you have a, a, a cranky boss or a difficult work colleague or a housemate who just constantly leaves a mess and you're a bit of a tidy freak or the other way around, whatever it might be. There are people all around, opportunities all around every single day. I guarantee this week you will have opportunities to practice patience. And it may just simply be counting to three in your head. Perhaps you find yourself stuck at the lights and the person in front stalls so that you miss a round of lights and you've got to wait there again. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity for me to practice. I can sit in my car and do nothing for 30 seconds. It is within my capability to do that. So I'm going to embrace that opportunity and practice patience. And as I deliberately practice little acts of patience, John Altberg talks about deliberately choosing the longest queue in the supermarket, as and when we're free to go to supermarkets and queue, anyway. But deliberately taking opportunities in your day where you have to practice little acts of patience. And you do that over a week, over a month, and within half a year, you have become a patient person. You have become the kind of person in terms of patience that you couldn't have imagined yourself being six months previously. And it's the same for love or forgiveness or generosity. Tiny acts of those elements of the fruit of the Spirit will increase those characteristics in you. You can discipline yourselves to be transformed so that you can test and approve what God's will is. Now, let's uh, watch a, a principle um, uh, in a classic film, The Karate Kid. In just a few minutes, I'm going to show you a little clip. It's about two and a half minutes or so. It's a kind of defining moment. It's the aha moment in the film, The Karate Kid. There have been several iterations of this, but this is, I think, the original one in the 1980s. And just in case you're, you're not familiar with the story, very briefly, uh, there's a guy called Daniel, young lad, and he's kind of picked on at school, and he thinks, I, I want to you know, be able to beat all the bullies around me. And so he gets taken in by this um, karate guru, Mr. Miyagi. And uh, Mr. Miyagi kind of takes him in with the promise that he will train Daniel to be a prize karate fighter and he'll be sort of in the thrall of everyone, all the school bullies. But um, Daniel's sort of a little bit puzzled to discover that actually what Mr. Miyagi gets him to do is a whole load of menial tasks. Um, so rather than training him to become this karate thing, he, he finds himself, he's got to endlessly sand this floor. He gives him some sandpaper and he just gets him to sand the floor, sand the floor. And he shows him how and then leaves him to sand this, this whacking great wooden floor. And, and now he says, well, I've done that. Right, now teach me to be a karate expert. And, and he says, no, no, come and clean my car. And he gives him a couple of cloths. And, and with one cloth, you wax on. And with another cloth, you wax off. Wax on, wax off. 
I, don't, well, I suppose this is sort of the, the fee for becoming a great karate expert. So he you know, wax on, wax off. And then when he's done this, he said, right now, I'm going to be a karate... No, no, Mr. Magi gives him a pot of paint and a paintbrush, and there's this great big wicket fence. And he says, paint the fence, paint the fence. And so Daniel, day after day, paint the fence. Paint. And he's getting really... Fed. When this clip comes in, Daniel basically has had enough of all this kind of slave labour, basically. You promised you would teach me karate, and all you're getting me to do is these chores that anyone could do, simple little things. And here's the confrontation and the outcome. Now show me sand the floor. How did you do that? Shut up! Say the floor. Stand up. Show me sand the floor. Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Big sucker. Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Hey, wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Concentrate. Look at my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Show me paint fence. Up, down. Down, up, down, other side, look eye, always look eye. Show me paint the house, side, side. Lock wrist, side, 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 side. Show me wax on, wax off. Yes! 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 Show me pen to fence. Hush! 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 Show me side to side. Yes! 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 Show me sand of floor. Hush! 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 says, see you tomorrow. And Daniel goes off realizing, ah, I, I thought I was just doing all these meaningless tasks, but I have been transformed into someone who can take on a karate guru and defend myself. 
I, I have become that karate guru. I have been transformed through indirect effort, doing the things that he could do so that cumulatively he has become what he never dreamed he could become. He's been transformed. That's how spiritual transformation works. See, you and I, we, we can try in our best effort and we can get so far in our own effort, in our own strength. But when, and this is the uniqueness of the Christian faith, when God himself, through Christ, by his spirit, lives in us, then our role simply is to allow the life and the power, the transformation of the spirit, to have free reign in us. So we discipline ourselves to do those things that release more of Jesus in our lives. Little acts of the fruit of the Spirit cumulatively transform us so that we can ascend the mountain. We can rid ourselves of false comforts and idols that never satisfy as eschewing them and restricting ourselves, if you like, we find true freedom. We live for Jesus wherever we are and we invite others into that great dance. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who have clean hands, a pure heart, who do not trust in an idol or swear by false gods, who seek his face and his life pouring in, through and out of them. Let's pause for a moment as uh, the guys come back. I'm going to just move over, give space for, for Hixie. Am I still there? But just in this space for you to, to dare to believe that God can bring that transformation in and through you so that you can be an agent of transformation in your places of work and in your homes and in your neighborhoods, within your family. You can face challenges and overcome them. Not because as contemporary world would have it, you know, anything you think, you can be whatever you want to be, you can dream whatever you want. It, it, it's more than that. It's because actually I'm not sure that's really true, if I'm honest. But I think with Christ in us, the hope of glory, anything is possible. Love you to just dwell in the truth and the reality of this real transformation as Laura and the guys as they lead us into his presence in sung worship.